Good. I'd like to ask for your attention, <clears throat> a, few, a few clarifications of our exercise. Um, we have started identifying aspects of breathing, um, have started taking up the exercise of returning attention to a chosen process, to a chosen quality of our experience. Um, sometimes we simply and confusingly speak of a meditation object as if the sensations of breathing was really an object. Um, this is just shorthand speaking. This is not an object. You know. The things we choose to be the focus of our attention, they can be events, they can be sensations, they can be processes. Yeah. So, if I say shorthand meditation object, that may mean all of the above. Yeah. So don't be fooled. Um, uh, Second uh, disclosure, the word attention is probably an understatement for what the Buddha meant by a quality called sati, which is essentially uh, the mind's capacity to be present with something. Attention sounds kind of neat and clean and uh, sort of psychologically sound. Yeah. Um, mindfulness, although an old word, I have found it in Wycliffe's Bible, um, um, and then in King James' Bible, and then later made famous by a Welsh Indologist who used it as a key translation for the Buddhist psychological term called sati, which is the sati in Anapanasati meditation, or the sati in Satipatthana meditation. Basically, that's the main Line, the main meditative uh, line in early Buddhism, and in fact in later Buddhism as well. So this sati is rather more than simply attention, just to be honest with you. It is ra the term mindfulness is um, a very nice term. Um, English speakers are to be applauded for having this, the meaning of this term coined uh, more or less by Buddhists by now. But uh, the term mindfulness is so popular nowadays that basically Buddhists are no longer having the say in what mindfulness is. You know, that 20 years ago it was us who basically said what mindfulness was. So we defined it in a sort of Buddhist way. But nowadays things have changed. Mindfulness is in the hands of uh, cognitive behavioral therapists nowadays. And Buddhists have no longer really the um, the sole uh, word on what that word means. So, since I I am slightly partial to the Buddhist notion of things, uh, as you can suspect, although I have respect for the work of cognitive behavioral psychology, and I have greatly benefited from some other psychological uh, clarifications. I do sense a depth and a scope in the Buddhist psychological notion of mindfulness that has yet to be, say, appreciated by the more recent developments in the, on the mindfulness <coughs> front. So, um, 
it is important to me that you are approaching these terms as if they had, uh, you know, as if they were in, uh, what's the word, apostrophes. Yeah. So attention is not just attending. It is a relationship. Mindfulness is a relationship. It's not a neat little cognitive technique, you know, uh, something that basically has to do with no judgment and uh, um, it's not a clean cognitive intervention technique to handle obstreperous little thought patterns in your head. That's a side effect of it. Uh, mindfulness, as it is understood in Buddhist teaching, is many things. One of the things it is under all circumstances, it is a relationship. It is a willingness to relate to your present experience. Yeah. It's not just a technique to step back and let it all happen and kind of go to some place where it can't hurt you and distance yourself from it. That is not what the Buddha meant by mindfulness. However useful such a technique may be in the face of depression, in the face of anxiety, in the face of anger, um, this alone is not what the Buddha meant. So, part of our capacity to attend is choice. There, cognitive behavioral psychologists and the Buddhists are absolutely of one opinion. Uh, Mindfulness is intentional. Sati is intentional. If that intention is only to stay in the present. If we don't have that intention, then we just, the drift will take over. Yeah. There is a sound, and then there is the word that connects the sound with the bird, and then we ask, is this a female or a male? Is this the right season or not? When did I last hear? Yeah? And the bird is gone, and the thought goes this way. So that's what I mean by drift. Buddhist psychology calls this papancha, conceptual proliferation. You know, We know it all. If, if you're unfamiliar with the term, I'm sure you're very familiar with the experience. It means that the mind... What it perceives sensorially, it conceives of and creates a discursive echo. And as we are strongly mentalized creatures, we spend a lot more time with the echo than with the actual stuff the echo is about. So while the bird has gone a long time, we still think about when we last heard the bird with whom we were and that the season was gorgeous and the weather was fine, if only the food had been a little and so forth. So this is the drift. The prime intention in mindfulness is to bring the focus of that attention back to the present. The present the present and the present in our exercise, the present of sensory awareness, the present of sensory bodily embodied reality. So that is the first, you have to understand this. Theoretically, you have to understand this. Otherwise, our little exercise makes maybe sense right now, but you know, when you're 20 minutes in your next emotion, it doesn't really make that much sense anymore. So you need theoretically to understand that redirecting attention to somatic present time experience is a crucial ingredient. See, the mind is in many ways complex and in many ways it's very simple. The whole of Buddhist meditation practice 
hinges on a simple principle that the mind begins to resemble the things it attends to and picks up and spends time with. It starts resembling that. Yeah, That's a simple principle. If I put my attention onto the breath, if that breath is becoming more calm because the body sits still and I follow the sensations of that calming breath, that itself calms the mind. Simply by putting my attention continually to something that is soothing, the quality of what I attend to starts to color the quality of the mind. Yeah? Call it mimicry, call it um, emulation or whatever. That simple principle is at the root of Buddhist meditative practices. If we want to still the mind, we have to give it something that allows it to become still. Yeah? Something that demands a certain degree of refinement. You know, if your breath becomes more fine, if you want to still feel it, you need to become more fine in your attention. That refinement will help your mind to, to go even further into stillness. Yeah. These are very, very simple patterns. You know that. If you're around with children, you know that. If you, um, if you spend some time with yourself just seeing how you are being affected, you will know that. So Buddhist Kayanupasana practice makes, makes a principle of this. So instead of trying to sort out our thoughts and the, the themes that are behind our thoughts, we try to cool the system. Well, we try to settle the mind because we realize it works more profoundly, it works more reliably if it is still, if it is equanimous, if it is quiet. Yeah. Buddhists often don't admit this, but actually one of the first jobs of greater sati, of greater mindfulness, is the more accurate operation of the perceptual process. Yeah. Buddhists always say, well, sati is the raw material for samadhi, for collectedness of mind. Uh, collectedness of mind you need to gain insight. Insight is what liberates the heart. That's true. And generally perception in Buddhist psychology gets bad press because perception is always slapping bits of the past onto bits of the present. Yeah? It means present sensory experience is what we experience now. And then there is this magic moment when we have a speechless immediate experience. And then the next moment is we have a label. We have a memory. We have filed it somewhere. We know this is a farm or this is a cow or this is a dehorned cow. or, yeah. Because we have seen such things. We recognize it. Yeah? We recognize it. Yeah? So this is the moment of perception in Buddhist psychology, which is a mixed blessing, because it's partly fresh, immediate, and partly it is already filed under the heading of something we believe to be knowing. Dubious. Yeah? Not just do we have a label for it somewhere in our files, we also have all kinds of emotions about it. Our labels are not neutral. 
We have labeled these things not just as cow or dehorned cow or something like that. We have labeled it as good dehorned cow, bad dehorned cow, yeah, horrible dehorning of cows, great safety, necessary evil, and so forth. We have we have a whole superstructure. It's not a clean label we have. That label has a color. We like it. We don't. It reminds us of. Yeah? There's a story. And any label has a little story. So all this comes up. While we meet the cow, yeah? we meet first the cowness of the cow. Yeah? And then we see, ah, this is a cow. And then this is a dehorned cow. And then we have our story about what we think about cows or dehorning of cows or uh, Ted Hughes describing the dehorning of cows in one of his poems and, and so forth. Yeah. And all this gets suddenly compacted into our experience of the cow. <coughs> and in a moment, you know, it has less and less to do with the cow and more and more to do with your story, your past, your way of having handled poetry and uh, agriculture and your ecological consciousness and your belief in animal rights and so forth. And the poor cow still stands there (laughs) and basically is having to face your story. And that's what we do with much of reality. That's what we do to the people close to us. That's what we do to uh, the things we engage with in life. Believing them to be the things we make them to be. Yeah. God, Roman man, forgot who it exactly was, he says, it's not the things that really disturb us, it's the thoughts we have about the things. <coughs> A very <coughs> truly elegant Latin insight into a fundamental pattern of our relationship that we, uh, we are faced with any moment. The mind, the brain, technically, is anticipatory. Sometimes this is very useful. You're in front of a traffic light, you know it's red. I don't have to do anything other than wait. After a while, it'll be green again. We've been through that. You know you don't have panic what happens now, or you don't feel you need to go and shake the, the traffic light. You just sit there and wait. Your brain is anticipatory enough and says, you know, it has been red for a while, so after a while it has always turned green. There's a good chance that this one turned green as well. All I have to do is just wait. So in such a moment, anticipatory nature of the brain is very useful. In other moments, it's not so useful. We believe we know what's coming, but in fact, it may not. It may not be as straightforward as it is the case with most traffic lights. Even with some of the traffic lights, you know, I've met some, they stayed red. (laughs) So the way to return attention to the nowness of our experience gets us out of this anticipatory process of basically apprehending or anticipating the world, getting back in touch with what actually takes place. And often enough, this is surprising. So one of the major tasks, returning attention, focusing attention to somatic experience, body, breath, uh, is 
this getting out of me making sense of the world, me running a commentary on life, on the universe. Uh, because that commentary is a lot more a product of my past history and my interpretation of that world than it is about the actual world as it unfolds right now in my psychological experience. The breath is a profound process in which we can engage with an aspect of reality in our lives because it stills the cognitive process. The breath is not something we can really um, do perfect and then stop. There is no such thing as a perfect breath. However perfect your breathing is, you, you will need to keep doing it. It's not something you finish with. Um, the breath is something you, you're likely to be doing as long as you, as long as you live. I, I would wish for you to. You know. It's something you've always with you. It is both subtle and yet it is of a frequency that the body and the mind can attune to. You could, if you're particularly gifted, feel the pulse of your lung tide in your you know, spinal fluid, but um, not many people do that without training. So breath is a lot more reliable. You can see other people breathing. Sometimes this is the last thing you can do. You can connect with somebody's breathing. If he's lying in a coma, uh, or if he's not conscious, or... Yeah, maybe you can still attune to somebody's breath. You are likely to have probably done that with kids or with lovers or people who are very ill. This is what we do. We establish a connection by attuning to breath. So this is not just something we can do with ourselves. All of the things you're learning here are things that are applicable to both your relationship to yourself and your relationship to others. That's what's so fantastic about teaching around sati is that it is catching up on a, on a fundamental reality of relationship. And obviously the depth and the quality and the attunement of relationship I can muster to attend to in relating to myself will be something I can offer to be relating to others to the degree I'm incapable of being with myself or have a relationship to the quality of my experience, I am very likely to be impaired in my relationship to what's going on for others. Yeah. So that's why this practice is very... Uh, you can't really do this without this be of any use for the place where you are or with whom you are. Yeah. That's why anybody who is aspiring in his in his attempt to understand the nature of his own experience will inevitably raise the context, uh, the consciousness in the context he or she lives in. So, what can happen to this mindfulness? Obviously, the drift, the cognitive drift is one thing that can um, happen. Sometimes, intensity of my experience can make me collapse. You know, my intention is fixated on one aspect, a thought, or it is fixated on a particular sensation, or it is fixated on a, an emotion, 
just rage or anxiety are classical examples. Lust can be pretty obsessive as well, but generally it is less flooding than, say, anxiety or anger. So, sometimes my awareness or my attention can be taken hostage by a particular intensity in my experience. There isn't really much you can do unless you have already established some kind of clarity what has taken place. You know, you just have to ride it out till it is till it kind of let lets go and the space becomes wider again. As a meditator, you can prepare. Yeah? One way of preparing is establishing the space, establishing a spatial quality of attention. You will have noticed that you can attend to things, small things, a sensation in your knee, um, a particular twitch at the tip of your nose. And you will also have noticed that you can make your attention wide. You can let it increase. So that you, you get the bit in the knee, but you also get your whole leg. So rather than just focusing your attention on a pinpoint in your knee, you can focus your attention on your leg, of which the knee is part of. So you, you insist that your attention does not collapse onto the most intense part of your experience. That's an interesting exercise. When we try to attend to things we feel that are non-dominant in our experience, we're exercising this capacity. We're trying to widen the mind's capacity to attend to things that are not the loudest, not the shrillest, not the most intense. For today, I'd like you to exercise with me to refine attention to the breath. You understand breathing is much more than a simple physiological function. <laughs> breathing is what connects what connects body and mind. Every big culture has understood that. The Japanese and the Chinese with their chi have understood that. The Greeks with their pneuma, the Indians with their prana, they have understood that breath is the way you can modulate body and mind. It is the way it is the messenger between the two. We can still the mind by stilling the body, by putting our attention onto a bodily process called breathing, and the continuity in our attention in doing so will still the mind. Yeah? So we can translate the body's stillness via the breath to be stillness of mind. That's the basic principle. Breathing is also, on a symbolic level, something we keep having to do, it is something which has to do with receiving and with letting go. Receiving and letting go. Now this is deeply symbolic of process that happens throughout our lives. The things that really count, your health and your happiness and your love, um, you can't really control. You know, however good you get at the things you try to be good at or you have learned to be good at, there's so many things in your life you cannot really control. You can help a bit, but you can't really ultimately control. We make ourselves believe that we control. control. 
I think we're quite inflated around this. There's so much inflation around our capacities of control and the promise that things can be controllable or manageable. Actually, most of the things that will probably make you happy or unhappy are very, you have very little overt control over. So, being capable of receiving, of welcoming, of letting in is a major task all of us face in life. Some things will be nice, delightful, exquisite. Some things will be unpleasant or truly horrifying, disturbing. And then we have to let go of them again. We have to let them in and we let them go. That's a fundamental truth about our lives and about the happiness in our lives. And like we... We don't stop eating just because we have diarrhea or we don't stop loving just because we get hurt in the process. Um, because we realize that if we stop doing that to control that this never happens again, you know, it is a, it's a verdict, isn't it? It, uh, it takes life out of our lives. You know? It's grotesque to stop eating just because you have indigestion or diarrhea. You become more cautious, obviously, more circumspect, or you try to recover. You know, certain measures are needed till you get back, but you don't stop eating because of this. So the same is true for this whole process of adapting to accepting, taking in, allowing that this invades you, inhab- inhabits you, and being able to let go to let it go its way, because we cannot control. So this fundamental truth about life is in many ways deeply manifest in every moment of breathing in and breathing out. Physiologically, breath is a fascinating movement because it's, you know, it can be utterly controlled. Both of our nervous systems can take complete control of it. We can either completely forget it, and it's in our autonomous nervous system, in fact, we're all still alive because we still breathe even though we forget the breath. And we can completely control our breath. Yeah? Use the other nervous system for it. And control every aspect of it. Every aspect of it. So there's probably no other function of body which we can equally control or equally leave over to the autonomous nervous system. There are a few other reasons which I won't go into. Today's exercise, you would like to start with body posture, start with scanning, receivingly your state of what it is that you can feel of yourself right now. You then go to the breath, where that breath is uh, in a tactile way, showing itself in you. If you're unsure, go to the belly. And you settle your awareness there. You don't follow the breath in and out. You don't try to make it small. You don't try to alter it, control it. If you find yourself controlling the breathing or influencing the breathing, try to make the space wider. Try to be less focalized. Let the breath be big. Imagine 
the, the breath comes into both of your palms. You know, with every in-breath, you kind of feel the weight, feel its pulse, feel its expansion. You are willing to be big in your awareness. That helps against the attempt to control. Um, if you feel that you are nevertheless controlling, just feel how how painful it is or how much effort there is or how unpleasant it is and see whether you can let go a little bit whether you can make the space a little bit bigger whether you can not um, reproach yourself for doing the controlling bit just uh, try to be allowing even if it is unpleasant, even if you feel you disagree with that part of yourself that does the controlling, try to allow even that bit. You don't have to say, yes, you're good. You just have to say, yes, this is as good as you can be right now. I allow. This is, this is makeable. This is doable. This is allowable to, for it to be that way. Yeah? And then try, next practical step, Try to lengthen the period of in-breathing, not as a, a lengthening of the breath, but as a lengthening of your attention. Yeah? Can you catch that breath earlier? What is the beginning, the middle, the end of an in-breath? Beginning, middle, the end of an out-breath. Can you actually get a feeling for the duration of this? Yeah? Mindfulness is measured generally in two simple ways. One of them is duration. You know, we're all mindful. We're all having topical attention. There's nothing outrageous about this. And it's not terribly dramatic. You know, it's not a meditative achievement. It's not a profound realization. We're all topically and episodically mindful. The real magic starts happening if mindfulness is continuous. Then things are getting more interesting. So if we have a con- dura- if the duration, so staying mindful with things longer than we would usually, according to our habits, already brings us into a very interesting territory. So staying with a taste beyond what we usually would. Staying with the sound till it really disappears. Staying with the sensation till it really subsides. Yeah. Trains the duration factor. The other factor is obviously space, yeah? So we can speak of the area of our awareness, which we'll do some later. Added today, if you find that you're not doing what you have agreed with yourself of doing, plan B, uh, not just do you bring back your attention to the body or to the breathing, but you ask yourself what it was that has taken you away or where you have found yourself. Is this a thought is this a sound? We, make, <clears throat> we ask two questions regarding the nature of our distraction. The first question is, is it mental or is it sensory? Mental is everything that isn't to do with sound, taste, touch. In other words, does it come from inside the mind? Has it popped up as an image or a, a memory or a fantasy or a thought? Or has it come from outside, a bell ringing, a bird creaking, uh, a door slamming, somebody coughing, a cold draft hitting my neck? These would be sensory experiences. So you ask yourself 
First question, is, my, is the reason that I am not mindful of the breath right now, is this a physical or a mental reason? Second question, is this pleasant to me? Do I like this? Is this agreeable? Is, or is this disagreeable? In other words, the sound that has distracted me, is this a pleasant sound or an unpleasant sound? The thought that has popped up in my mind and has taken my attention away from the breath, is this a pleasant thought or an unpleasant thought? If you're unsure whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, just give it one second glance. And if you're still unsure, let it slip. Yeah. There'll be enough to there'll, uh, there'll be enough to to come. Yeah. So don't kind of spend fifteen minutes figuring out whether what you really have felt about this bird, you know, a quarter of an hour ago. Just forget about it. Yeah. You'll be having plenty of distractions, you'll be having plenty of pleasant and unpleasant experience. Theoretically, there are pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experiences. For the uh, aficionados amongst you, the adukamasuka uh, vedana is a theoretical possibility. Practical experience seems to show that we generally don't even pick up on the subtly pleasant and subtly unpleasant nature of our experience, let alone on the genuinely neutral type of experience. So while we acknowledge the theoretical possibilities of neutral experiences and our capacity to perceive neutral experiences, um, right now for the exercise we're about to embark, the pleasant ones and the unpleasant ones are a lot more important. What you want is a little statistic at the end of your day, just scratch marks, okay? Pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant thought, pleasant sound, pleasant thought, unpleasant sound, and so forth. So no big analysis, no big investigations, no profound fathoming of the nature of your experience. Just when you find yourself distracted from the breath, which is our primary object, notice, is that distraction pleasant or unpleasant? Is it mental or is it sensory? And then back to the breath. Yeah? Good. Let us exercise.